Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST 146, our first LP by Sylvia Juncosa, the Nature album. Very cool to start getting into Sylvia. We've um, had some related artists on with Swa before, but this is a solo album by Sylvia, which is very, very cool. And we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, we've got Sylvia Juncosa on the show. Yeah, we we tracked Sylvia down and had her on. Um, it's awesome because we go way, way back yeah. to uh, a number of you know related Sylvia bands and also do a deep dive into this LP. So we're really, really lucky and so happy that Sylvia was able to join us for the show. Super cool. Yeah, it was a real task tracking her down and getting her getting her nailed down for the interview. And I had some help from uh, a listener, Ken Dela Cruz, and also Dave Childs, who plays on this record, helped me out too. So thanks to them for helping me get Sylvia on the record. Yeah, totally. Brant, before we uh, get into nature, how about some spiels for the people? Sure. I've got a lot, so I'm going to plow through them here. I'm, plow away. I'm doing the P section now of the get this shit off my phone. <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, should I give you a, should I give you a name? Yes, please. Please, Brant, give me some recommends. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. Okay. Peace Corpse. Oh yeah. Terror of, of History, 1986. Toxic Shock Toxic Records. Kind of yeah. gothic punk. I don't really know too much about them. I thought maybe you could look them up for me in the Phantoms book. You want me to look them up in the Phantoms book? <laughs> Not right now, but at some point. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, I've got the, all their records. I've, I'm trying to trying to get everything on Toxic Shock eventually. They're cool. Uh, Pig Destroyer has a new record. They're a grind band that you would probably not like. Ryan, uh, a new EP actually on Relapse called The Octagonal Stairway, and it's great if you like what they do. It ends with a 12-minute ambient noise jam uh, fe featuring Igor Cavalera of Sepultura. The band Pigs written seven times, like pigs, pigs, pigs. They have a new record called Visera. It's good. It's on this label, Rocket Recordings. It's kind of like big business era Melvins. Great riffs, great vocals. Hmm. Pinups, self-titled record on Triple X Records, 1992. It's a covers record with a bit of a who's who of LA punk rockers. Bruce Duff plays the bass on it and engineered and mixed it. Dave Nasworthy's nice. on it. Nice. Frank and Rick Agnew. Steve Soto, rest in peace, of the Adolescents. Uh, Rick L. Rick is on it. And Tony Adolescent is the vocalist. Good pedigree. Yeah, they cover uh, Rick's Rick L. Rick's former band, F Word. They do the Vile Tones, Generation X, Dead Boys. They do the song White Riot by The Clash. It's a good record. Here's one that's on the SS Tree. Paul Rossler's Pandemonium Shadow Show, 1983, on Iridescence Records. Very interesting record. Many of the vocals are handled by Michelle Bell, who was associated with the Germs, and was briefly in a band called Vagina Dentata with Pat Smear. Kira plays all the bass on this record. Gary Jacoby, who was in the Death Folk with Pat Smear and has two cool records on New Alliance Records, plays on this. 
Uh, he also later played in Celebrity Skin, who have a killer record on Triple X. And Dix Denny of the Weirdos and Thelonious Monster plays some guitar on it. Paul Cutler of 45 Grave, Vox Pop, B People, Consumers, Dream Syndicate, United Gang Members with Chuck Dukowski. He plays some guitar and produced it. And, of course, Paul Rossler is on keys and wrote all the songs. It's too bad he doesn't sing on it a bit more because I love his vocals on the DC3 records we've done. And I'm looking forward to the DC3 live album we're coming up to in a, in a month or so. Yeah. And he has a solo record, too, that I can't wait to get to. We're ways off from that, though. Is that Vita? Is that the DC3 one? Is that the live one? Yeah. Yeah. Vita? Okay. This, cool. This record's a little new wavy. It's got some prog stuff on it. It's cool. Okay, another one on the SS Tree, that Petrified Max Charlie Drove North record. Great power pop from Vitas Matare, John Rosewall of The Last, and Trotsky Ice Pick, and many other bands, and former Lou Reed drummer Danny Frankel. Yep. Good stuff. Another one on the tree, the Peer Group, Rhetoric and Hand 7-inch. They're a Pedro band. Ah. These recordings were supposed to be New Alliance Records 009, but it didn't happen until Water Under the Bridge Records rescued the tracks in 2013. There's some live stuff. The track we heard on episode 69 off the Chunks EP. George Hurley's brother Mike is the drummer. Gary Jacoboli is on guitar and vocals. We've seen him before for sure. Did some artwork for Saccharine Trust. Probably seen him pop up on a Minutemen record, I'm guessing. Yep. Cool, kind of early raw punk. Another one on the SS Tree, Place of Skulls. They're a doom band with a rotating membership and a few different vocalists. This one, from 2003, called With Vision, Features who else but Scott Wino Weinrich on guitar and vocals, and it's killer. Came out on the Southern mm. Lord label. I did the record by Pylon called Hits, which is a pretty good comp. They're a pill-esque post-punk band from Athens, Georgia, with a couple really great albums and a bunch of singles from the early 80s. New West is actually releasing a uh, box set that looks really great, four LPs. The two original LPs and a ton of extras, a 200-page book with liner notes from members of Whoa. Gang of Four, Sleater Kinney, Steve Albini. Go on YouTube and watch the trailer video for the Pylon box and tell me you don't want that. No, I know I do. Okay, here's the CanCon portion, Ryan, of my Get This Shit Off My Phone segment. Wait, wait a second, wait a second. You better tell people what CanCon is. <laughs> Because they're not going to have any reference for that. <laughs> right. What the hell is CanCon? Is that a new genre of music? CanCon is this stupid law in Canada that says radio stations have to play X amount percentage Canadian content. Yeah. And it's supposed to benefit Canadian artists, but all it really does is benefit Celine Dion and Brian Adams and Nickelback. Yuck. Yep. So okay. hit me with some CanCon. Okay. Painted Thin. Still nice. May Die of Heartbreak. Not Oh, yeah. 1987 EP on Endearing Records. Also a show, they have some stuff on the Propagandis label, G7 Welcoming G7, Committee. G7, yep, yep. They were from Winnipeg, broke up in 99. Vocalist, guitar, guitarist Stephen Carroll and drummer Jason Tate went on to join the Weaker Thens. Great 90s punk rock. Yeah, but you know who Jason Tate was in? That's even better than Painted Thin Man. Who? Red Fisher. Was he in Red Fisher? Yeah, there's okay. some CanCon for you. Check out the Red Fisher 
Yes. Okay. Pigment vehicle. Woo! Yeah. Now we're talking. A band Ryan and I bonded over for sure. I did, Ryan, the Hockey Night in Saskatoon tape. Their first wow. one. Wow. The first of their many great albums. I And, Ryan, I checked, and their final and probably most accessible studio record, Murder's Only Foreplay When You're Hot for Revenge, from 1998, on Joe Keithley's Sudden Death Records label, is on streaming sites. It's on Spotify. So people should check that out. Unfortunately, the rest of their stuff is almost impossible to find. Some yeah. of it is cassette only. If I would give anything to have, you know, those first two cassette only releases properly mastered and released, you know. Oh yeah. But, you know the song Murder's Only Foreplay? Yeah. Is not even on the CD version, it's on the cassette only version of that LP as well, by the way. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> At a boy. Yeah. <laughs> Love some pigment vehicle though. If they are a challenging listen for like, they are like, I don't know. They get most often compared to no means no, I guess. Yeah. But look, if you like saccharine trust, we remember during the surviving you always album. Yeah. We're like, yeah. Pigment vehicle listened to surviving you always. Yeah. hundred percent. For sure. Yep. Okay. Ryan still in the can con here. Personality crisis. I did their self-titled CD. It came out in 2017 on Sounds Escaping, this Winnipeg label. It's a double CD that has their yeah. Creatures for a While album on it, which is a top 10 Canadian punk record for sure. It And the CD has an, a second CD with all the comp tracks, uh, all three of their demos, a huge booklet full of amazing photos, liner notes by Chris Walter, who wrote a great book about the band called Warm mm -hmm. Beers and Wild Times which I checked, is still available on his website, punkbooks.com. Highly recommend that. And while you're at it, buy his SNFU book and his Randy Rampage book. That mm -hmm. one that one stays yep. on my phone forever, though. And his uh, his oral history of Canadian punk rock book, too, is good. The uh, the Chris Walters book. Yeah, I've never done that one. Also, the Daglo Abortions one is actually good, too. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, since we're in the CanCon zone, um, when that personality crisis double disc came out, he also put out a great stretch marks uh, yes, anthology as he well. Did. Yep. Yeah, I own a few different copies of that Creatures for a while, but that CD is worth getting for sure. Okay, Ryan, super obscure Canadian time here. Primrods, kneecapping, the pride yes. of Calgary, Alberta. Yes. The Primrods. This album came out on a local label, Melodia, in 1995. The band was ultimately signed to G DGC and recorded an album that never got released for Geffen, uh, although it's been bootlegged. They are often referred to as Canada's Wire. Totally essential stuff. Yeah. I wouldn't compare them to Wire, but I can see why people do that. And that DGC unreleased album was deadly. Yeah. All their stuff is. Pair Ubu, dub housing. Ryan, I love all types of avant-garde music, but I've been trying to get into Pair Ubu for years, and I just cannot. I think I'm giving up. <laughs> what? Yeah, I think I'm going to give up trying. Oh, I don't get it. I don't, I don't, I don't get Pair Ubu. Okay, pop group, why? Whoa, you're just cruising past Pair Ubu just like that? Just like that, I'm giving up on Pair Ubu. I mean, if you can like pop group, how can you not like Pair Ubu? But anyways... I don't know. 
Okay, I won't give up. 1979 British post-punk band, a band I need to spend more time with, pop group. Uh, this record actually, uh, they released a live version of it this year that people might want to check out. Here's one that you will appreciate, Ryan. Pavers, Wrecking Ball, their EP from 2002. Yeah. Scott Reynolds of All right by ha Harry. I'll admit I haven't really checked it out before. It's cool. I mean, Scott could sing the telephone book and it would sound great. Yep. All the Pavers stuff is good. The Goodbye Harry stuff is good. His solo stuff is good. It's all good. You know, man, you know, this theme, you know, please give me some recommends. The letter P. Yep. All, all the stuff you're recommending, I've got already. Come on, give it to okay, me. Okay, well, I'll see what I can do here. Here's one that's on the SS Tree. Passionel, the Apostle EP. 19... I recommended that to you. Yeah, I think you did, yeah. 1984, Enigma. Del Hopkins, the drummer, played with Vox Pop, 45 Grave, Twisted Roots, Jeff Dahl. Alex Gibson, the guitar player vocalist, was in B People and also did the soundtrack to Suburbia. He has a very distinct guitar tone. Similar to Greg Sage's, kind of, in The Wipers. Yeah. Did you like I it? I did like it. Robin Jameson of the Flesh Eaters, Divine Horseman, was in this band. Kind of gothy yep. new wave. It's really good. Yeah, I thought you'd like it. Yep. There's also a full length I need to track down, and Alex has an EP under his own own name, but the album is titled Passionel. Okay, Pillbox, Jimbo's Clown Room. You asked me a couple weeks ago what the real name of Mr. Ratboy is, Ryan. It's Gilbert Avondet, and he's the riffmeister on this record. He plays guitar. Oh. Uh, he was also in the Jeff Dahl band, Motorcycle Boy, Sour Jazz, tons more. Uh, the vocalist is Chris Berry. He was in a Canadian goth band called 39 Steps. There's a great uh, Williamson-era Stooges Iggy Pop vibe to this record. Just hit after hit, too. It's really good. Cool. I just got a new uh, Jeff Dahl CD. It's called, like I bought, bought it for dirt cheap. It's called Have Faith. Yep. And it, it says on it, Caution contains acoustic guitars. Yeah. Three exclamation points. Yeah, it's his acoustic <laughs> record. Yep. Okay, perfect. Once, twice, three times a maybe. Tommy nice. Stinson after the breakup of Bash and Pop. Prong, Prove You Wrong, 1991. Love it. Love those early Prong records. You don't? Prong? Yeah. No, no man. Pass. Not. You're going to pass on Prong? P for pass. Yep. How are you passing on Prong? Please. Okay, Ryan. John Coates from Phantom Tollbooth, a band you really like. Yes. Uh, let me know that they re-released their debut full-length One-Way Conversation which came out in 1987 on Homestead. He remastered it, and you can stream it on Spotify, or it's available digitally. Unfortunately, no hard copy for you, Ryan. Dude. But there are, there are a few demos cool. on it. So we've been chatting back and forth, and I, I asked him some questions about some SST connections for the show. I'm going to read you what he sent me, okay? Nice. Okay, he says... We signed to Homestead and played with all the bands that would jump ship and go to SST. Sonic Youth were like our older brothers, and we shared their rehearsal space for a short while that they had under the street in NYC. It was the space where they wrote Bad Moon Rising. In that space, we wrote many of the one-way conversation tracks. 
Many shows played with Sonic Youth, and I always remember walking by Thurston, who was always hanging out with Jay Mascus in CBGB and hearing Thurston yell, Coats, as I walked by. He was so supportive. We played many of the earliest dinosaur shows in many little small venues, including CBGB. It's hard to believe now, but in the early dino days, Phantom Tollbooth was the louder and noisier band. Murph is a sweetheart, but we never got to really know Jay well. We covered their song Quest for the Homestead comp Human Music as a tribute to Murph, who was and is just the yep. best all-around good guy. When I listened to the Andy Hawkins interview that you did, I laughed many times at his recollections of Martin BC and BC Studio, where we recorded one way. That was a no-man's land in what is now prime real estate. Martin is a great guy, but I definitely know he was in love with Reverb and the drums that he recorded from Blind Idiot God, Phantom Tollbooth, Live Skull, and Season to Risk all sound thin and reverbed out. I think we felt the most allegiance to the SST bands. Homestead has some great bands, Big Black Volcano Sons, but most of the people we played with early on moved to SST. The Homestead vibe was not like the SST Brotherhood. We were all trying to survive, and the shows played together were fun, but more survival of the fittest. We were all touring on extreme low budget. We played with some of the SST bands, Minutemen, Divine Horsemen, Leaving Trains, and of course all the homesteaders who made the move to SST, especially Sonic Youth, Dinosaur, and Volcano Sons. We felt an affinity with Saccharine Trust, but never got to play with them. Blind Idiot God would have been great for us to play with, but that didn't happen. The Minutemen gig was a highlight of being in Phantom Tollbooth. They were super supportive, and I got to watch Mike Watt try to play Jerry's bass. There was no way that a finger player like Mike could tame the monster that was Jerry's Rickenbacker. That Minutemen show at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey was one of the greatest gigs I have ever seen. Their set list was on a giant scroll, that many songs. We loved that band, although we were probably a lot more sonically in line with Saccharine Trust. Yep. Our biggest SST connection was that I loved Spot and his production. We actually searched Spot out in 1987 and recorded our final LP, Power Toy, with him in Austin, Texas. That was the recording highlight of being in Phantom Tollbooth. He was, is probably one of the biggest characters in the SST original crew, and that is saying a lot. He is a genuine artist with the sweetest personality imaginable. He coaxed our best recording out of us and told the best stories of roller skating, the California beaches, and just being a good old freak before he fell in with the SST crew. He is a legend, and we were in awe of his body of work. He was disillusioned with L.A. and truly loved Austin at that point. I remember running into him many, many years later after I moved to Austin and telling him, John, and him telling me, John, I am so glad you are here, but everyone else, we are telling them to go home. That was during the last years before Austin was overrun. Spot loved Celtic music, and I saw him play many Celtic jams in Austin including the big Irish fest. Here's an interesting thing, Ryan. I'm wondering if you knew about this. I bet you did, because I know you're a big fan. On the Meat Puppets front, the Kirkwood brothers also ended up here in Austin, and I love to catch them in their yearly St. Paddy's Day blowout at the Black Dog Pub. Jerry from Tollbooth got to open up for them one year when he was in Doug Gillard's, uh, that's the Guided by Voices guitar players band. We ended up with lots of connection to the Guided by Voices crew, as Bob Pollard is probably the biggest fan of Phantom Tollbooth on the planet. Yep. He says, Not sure if you heard, but we let Pollard wipe the vocals off Power Toy and sing all the songs when we released it as Beard of Lightning. Yep. 
The Phantom Tollbooth fans are divided on his take on our songs, and Gerard Kosloy really felt that we shouldn't have messed with our original work. I actually like what Bob did, but in the end, I prefer the original spot record with our vocals. Yep, I agree. The original is better for me. The most bizarre Homestead connection for Phantom Tollbooth was that we were, for a short while, on Nick Cave's label. We never played with the Bad Seeds, but we used their tour rider in Europe, and that was intense. Nothing like seeing what alcohol Nick and Blixa required before a gig. That European tour was our best moment as a band. For some reason, Phantom Tollbooth could play shows in Europe and were treated like gods in Germany. The States were always a slog, like so many of the interviews with the SST crew have told you. So in the end, we ended up being called one of the originators of what would be called math rock. Mm-hmm. Although I hate that term, I like that it connects back to the Minutemen and Saccharin, even the instrumental Black Flag and Gone. The noise rock tag is probably closer to what we were, and we really were different from most of the SST crew in our love of pure sound. Dave Rick could make his guitar do things that I've never heard anyone else do, and Gerard Smith is one of the most unique bassists I have ever heard. So there you go, Ryan. There's from uh, John Coates from Phantom Tollbooth. I thought you might get a kick out of that since I know you're a big fan. Yeah, no, I love that, man. I would love to hear some remastered stuff, so I'll check that out. But I I mean, it's one of those things where would I, would I really love it or will I still dislike the way that I'm so used to hearing it? I don't know. Yeah. Okay, and then real quick, Ryan, I did. I checked off three more items off your recommends list here your last 10 Ooh, so i did the bud record jawa kind of reminded me of the stuff that was coming out on man's ruin in the late 90s like unida or earthlings right down to the cover art yep it's it's good cactus nerve thang sloth definitely sounds like a 90s band for sure yep and then i did the banos ibanos singles going broke record which was definitely my favorite of the three ah it is a good one Yep. That's it. What do you have for spiels? That's it? That's it. Okay, you only really had one spiel. I have more probably next week in my P section because I just ran out of time this week. This is your P section. I'm. It's going to probably spill into next week. There's not very many cues on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. People, I think we mentioned this a few weeks back, but uh, how Record Store Day is doing a, a number of drops in a row rather than just one day this time of the year. But people who are watching the SS tree grow and grow and grow should, of course, uh, keep their eye out for the latest record store day drop releases by Worm. That finally came out. The Poison 7-inch finally came out. So that's cool. Watt and the Second Men had a release called Incontessence. And then... Dinosaur Jr. had a live LP recorded 1997 that was released called Swedish Fist. Those were the three, and I'm sure there's more on the SS tree, but those were the three most obvious ones from this last Record Store Day drop. Meat Puppets 10 inch as well. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I totally missed that. Well, I mean, you would you would know more than I would, actually. I mean, are you aware that there was a, a triple... LP by the replacements released a triple LP. No. Yeah. See, and I am all over that. So hmm. that makes what sense. Is, what is it? It's the live incarcerated 
as a triple LP, hmm. I guess. Cool. So um, kind of cool to have that all all out there. Um, Slim Dunlap era mats. It's good. It's live. It's good quality. There, it's not one of their drunken stupor shows. It's one of their most bootlegged shows, I would say. And now it's out kind of official. A lot of it was on, if not all of it, was on Dead Man's Pop last year. So, okay. All right. And then for my uh, final spiel, Brent, we're going to go into your favorite zone. Can you guess which one? The Calm Zone. That's right. So, um, wait, I are we in the Calm Zone this week? No. We're not in the comp zone. This this is like comp zone within the comp zone. This is just a comp zone spiel. Okay. Okay. Um, A couple of scene comps. I mentioned last week that I was going to mention this week, so I want to make sure that uh, I mention these. Cleveland Confidential, the classic 1982 Cleveland comp, scene comp on Terminal Records, um, has... The, the only real bands on it that I know that went on to further releases that I ever followed were the Pagans and the Offbeats, but um, it's it's now re-released on Superior Viaduct Records, and yeah. I'm going to do a deeper dive on that scene comp from 1982, Cleveland Confidential. Yeah, there's some good Cleveland stuff coming out lately. There's the, the one on Hozak as well. Yep, you got that right. Okay, second scene comp is uh, a double LP on Hold Fast Records called End of the Night. Hmm. It's a Detroit punk scene comp, 1976 to 1983. Brand, brand spanking new, End of the Night, double LP. I know zero of the bands on this comp, so really looking forward to taking a dive into that scene comp i'm gonna do some cleveland i'm gonna do some detroit this week so check those out that's all i got right on man okay let's kick it over to this nature record history lesson part one all right man we're really lucky to have sylvia on like i said at the outset um and and we've had sylvia on before as part of like a swa but i mean technically also, I, I don't think Sylvia was on any of the Leaving Trains releases, but she was also in Leaving Trains, so definitely part of the SST family, Sylvia Juncosa. Yeah, I have a little history lesson here on Sylvia. Can I spiel it for you? Please. Okay. Although Sylvia is primarily known as a guitarist, she got her start as a musician playing in the Leaving Trains. She played keyboards in the band's early years, and she appears on 1981's Keats Rides a Harley, which is Happy Squid 007. We've discussed that comp many times. It has the Leaving Trains track Virginia City on it. And on the 2005 CD reissue also has an early version of Cigarette Motel, which was later recorded for the Kill Tunes record. She appears on their first single in 1982, the Bringing Down the House Going to Town 7-inch on Happy Squid, which as we've mentioned many times, is the label started by the band The Urinals. That's Happy Squid 009. And we would have for sure talked in detail about Happy Squid on episode 64 on the Angst self-titled EP, which originally was released on Happy Squid. There's also some early trains tracks on the original version of the Wharf Rat Tales comp. The songs Creeping Coastline, 
of Lights and the song Leaving Train. She also plays keyboards on the Leaving Train's debut, Well Down Blue Highway, 1984, Bemis Brain. By that point, she had formed her, her own band, To Damascus, and through her own Ringent Records, they released the Another Place, Another Time on a Pier single in 1984, which Ethan James produced. There's also a few early To Damascus tracks on the Unabridged Wharf Rat Tales CD, Night Surfing, and a track called And Leave and Leave Me. In 1986, To Damascus released the record Succumb, again on Ringent. Jason Kahn plays drums on the record, who also has a deep SST pedigree, who we spoke to on episode 109. Tom Hofer of The Leaving Trains, Trotsky Ice Pick, etc. played bass on that record. Uh, also on some of the tracks, Tyra Von Pagenhart plays bass, and Dave, o Dave Winogrand on drums. And those two would end up being the rhythm, rhythm section on the follow-up record, 1987's Come to Your Senses. Also in 1987, she joined SWA for their excellent 93 record. And this brings us to the record we're talking about this week, her solo debut, Nature. This might be, Ryan, one of our first records that was actually released in 1988. It was recorded January 88 at Radio Tokyo, and you'll hear more about the sessions and the musicians involved in the, in the interview. Yeah, and I mean, if, if I'm not mistaken, this is our first solo album by a woman that we've uh, covered on the show. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's a big deal. And that uh, is covered in the interview as well. Yeah. The drummer on the record is Dave Childs, who was in Lawndale. We interviewed him on episode 125 and the bassist who's unfortunately passed away is Tom Shannon. Yeah. He's got some chops. He does. Should we kick it over to Sylvia? Let's do it. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Sylvia Juncosa. Sylvia, thanks for being on the show. Oh, of course. No, thank you. Okay, so I'm wondering if you can take me back and tell me about where did you grow up? Los Angeles, um, on the west side. I consider myself very fortunate because the um, actual town was like really nice and near the beach and just kind of mellow and... I got a lot of, like in my early childhood, like as a, like a little kid, yep. I was running around in the hills and going in the ocean. You know, maybe in my teens, I was getting into surfing and I could be doing that, you know, pretty conveniently. And um, since then, that whole area is just, you know, you have to be super rich to live there. It's all mansionized. It's all crowded. It's, you know, I, w I don't even think I would want to live there even if I was rich, right. you know. <laughs> so I was really fortunate, like um, California and the West Side in those days was really, you know, had these just amazing places that were affordable. And um, so I would consider my childhood is sort of, um, you know, like I was kind of in nature a lot. Right. You know, I was like running around. That was the other cool thing about childhood back then is uh you weren't all locked up like kids are now. For sure. You know? Yeah. They just tell you, you know, be home by dark or, you know, somewhere around there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I was really lucky. When did you start playing music? Um, really early. That was kind of a family thing. They all played classical music. It was one of those things where 
um, the parents wanted every child to have piano lessons and then some kind of instrument. Right. Like piano was like considered like a starter instrument, and then you would learn something else like the trumpet or the violin. I wanted to do violin, but this is really stupid, but my other brother had played violin, and for some weird reason, my mother said no, because he already did violin, which makes no sense, <laughs> you know? Like, he's, like, taken for violin forever. No one else in the world can play the violin because my brother did. Right. <laughs> it's just one of these weird things. So, yeah, so we all learned, you know, starting at, I don't know, three or five or six or something, took some lessons. Not Not a whole lot, not, like really hardcore, you have to practice five hours a day, but we all had a lot of exposure to it. Right. Rock and roll, though, and of course later like punk and alternative, that that was later and that was my own thing. Like, my family was, as you know, my parents and my older brothers, they were into music, but they weren't really into rock and they definitely weren't into alternative. Um, that was definitely like my own direction and it was not, not approved. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start getting into like, you know, into rock and roll or punk rock or, you know, whatever the gateway was for you? Like, like cool music? Yeah, cool music. <laughs> um, yeah, I think about 16 or so. Yeah. Um, I would say in my earlier teens, I started getting into rock, but, you know, just whatever I heard on the radio, which was like that 70s stuff. You know, just like whatever was mainstream, that's just because it was all I heard. And then um, it was kind of weird. I joined the leaving trains. I'm sure you know them. They're also, they yeah. were also on SST. Yeah. Um, and that was just kind of a, we sort of stumbled across each other. They had an ad. They were looking for a keyboard player. And I didn't even play guitar at that, at that time. So at that point, I was 16 and I played the piano and I had these dreams of having some kind of band where I'd play keyboards and sing. Okay. And I was getting into, I still didn't know about like punk kind of stuff, but I was gravitating towards more obscure, like sixties kind of stuff and psychedelics. And like, to me, that was kind of alternative as opposed to compared to what people listened to at like my high school. But I didn't know about any kind of punk bands and, I think SST probably was just starting at that point. Probably Black Flag was around. So the leaving trains just happened to be, they put an ad and they were local to me. So I went and they were just as, as raw beginner as I was as far as being in a band was concerned, like not having any experience or equipment or whatever. Right. And uh, so I joined up with them. And I do have to credit um, uh, James, Bolling James and Manfred, Hofer and um, and his brother Tom Hofer, the members of the Leaving Trains, for introducing me to, you know, like punk stuff and, you know, like the Buzzcocks, the Sex Pistols, the, um, the a lot of the LA bands like X and uh, the Gun Club and stuff like that that was around that was right. completely new to me and who became my favorite local band, The Last. Yeah. Um, and that's when I really started like falling in love with that kind of a thing. But we were still really young. I was still 16 and in high school. And and, uh, and also the urinals and Happy Squid Records, I think you kind of uh, became associated yeah. with. Yeah, that was kind of a cool story, too, because we had heard 
we were looking for a place to to rehearse at. You know, like we didn't have any money, and the places around were. I mean, it was really very laughable the kind of equipment that we were using and the kind of schemes that we were coming up with to be able to rehearse. Like <laughs> in this time period, I think any eight-year-old band would be doing better in in regards to equipment you know how to learn songs and play how to get gigs how to promote your band and all the kind of like logistical things like any kid knows all those things now but back then it was just more weird and rare and not in our environment and then we had also declared ourselves to be like on the other side of the fence from mainstream music so we couldn't follow that route and do what they did so anyway so one of the weird places that we rehearsed at um, was the parking structure at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. And they got that idea, James and Matt said they got that idea because they'd heard that the urinals did that. So we went there, and sure enough, by like dumb luck, this guy, when we were playing, this guy comes riding up on a bicycle, and like everyone else, when they heard us, they left it quickly as possible because we sounded awful (laughs) you know we were just starting out and even if we had been at our best they probably would have hated the music anyway and uh, anyway but this one guy comes up and he's like watching and we were so astounded that when Manfred when we stopped our song Manfred said why didn't you leave like that was his question to the bicycle guy (laughs) you know not high or anything like that. that that's how astounded we were and uh, he's like, oh, I like you guys. And we were like, really? Like, you're the first one ever. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> you know? And it turned out that was Kevin, the drummer of the urinals. And we quickly introduced. And then I guess they kind of realized who he was because they had seen that band play. But I hadn't and Tom hadn't. Right. And then it turned out that they were playing a gig. And he's like, hey, like that very night. He's like, hey, come open up for us. And that was our first gig. And, of course, we were completely terrible but anyway um that was when i got introduced to the urinals and started going to all of their shows and wow um things were cool in those days that was like a really awesome time period yeah like the one thing i always say about the 80s is you know there was just such an energy with the scene then and even though by the time i started there were already people a few years older than me who had gone to like the math, which was like the seminal underground punk club. And that had already closed down by the time I came, you know, became aware. And, you know, they were, oh, it was so much cooler before. And so there's always going to be people saying things were so much cooler before. Right. Um, but, but still, I think I have a genuine point when I say that that was a very alive time in music because the whole SSC record thing grew up in that time. But also, if somebody's like into the, the alternative bands that got big, like at the same time in LA, there was like, um, well, a few years later, James Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers right. uh, came up. And, um, you know, there was so much going on. Before that, there was like X and the Go Go's and the Bangles and the Weirdos and, like I said, the Gun Club and the Gears. And there was, there was a thriving punk scene. And that followed, followed that was kind of a metal scene, but there was still a, there was an alternative scene and a metal scene ongoing at the same time. And both of them produced bands that 
later either got really famous and or made a mark on music. Like like the SST bands, I think, made a mark. You know, they were influential. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I wanted to say in, in about the 80s is, at least in my milieu, you, people really wanted to have a band, and but not just have a band, be in a band, but have a good band. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was like every, it, at least the, you know, with some exceptions, of course, it seemed to me that everybody in that scene, their band had this unique personality to it and was just driven to do something really cool. Not just do something like it is now with a lot of bands, but to do something really cool. Um, and that was just a great energy to have. Yeah. When did you start playing guitar? Oh, so guitar, um, I started noodling around when I was in the leaving train. So we're still back in around 1980 with that for, I think, 80 to 82. Mm -hmm. And I started noodling around during that time and deciding that I really liked guitar and it was worked out a whole lot better for writing the type of songs I wanted to write than keyboards did. And even though I'll always love kind of secretly playing piano in my house to myself, (laughs) playing keyboards in a band, it doesn't really fit the kind of music that I want to make and most of the music that I listen to. And um, it's not, you can't move around, you can't interact with your instrument the way you can guitar. Right. You know, guitar is is more physical. Um, Electronic keyboards, they, even now with better technology, but especially back then, it was kind of just like typing. You know, the keys don't respond the way they would on a piano or the way they definitely would, the way the strings do on a guitar. So you, you can't bend or have volume dynamics with your fingertips. And that really bugs me. And you can't move. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't vibrate on its own. It just It was just electronic. And that... I started playing guitar. I was like, "Oh, this is a whole new world. This this is much more like music, <laughs> you know." <laughs> and I started falling in love with it, and that brings up a very weird thing about my guitar playing, which is I'm left-handed, right? And I should have played left-handed. Like, who knows what I might have accomplished? But I'm playing wrong-handed, in other words, right-handed, normal-handed, um, because by the time I decided that guitar was going to be the instrument I wanted to do seriously, like my number one instrument, yeah. by that time it was like I'd already made made some headway, and it would be like, oh, I got to start all over again, yeah. like all over again, just like barely being able to move my fingers, and 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 back then there weren't really any or very much of availability of left-handed instruments. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, of course, I was weird. You know, I wasn't going to be satisfied with either a Fender Strat or a Gibson Les Paul. Those were your two options if you were left-handed, because you weren't going to find a Gretsch or maybe one of the weirder, um, you know, Gibson SG, which is what I ended up playing for the rest of my life, basically. (laughs) Um, or, or, Or anybody else's guitar. You couldn't be at a party and people start jamming, and they're like, hey, Sylvia, don't you play? Play That's us true. something. Yeah. And I'd be like, uh. 
<laughs> you know? Yep. Or you could be on stage and break a string, and then your friend could run up and say, here's my guitar, and be like, uh... Yeah. You know, it was. It seemed like, my, um, you know, the, to have too many issues with it. Yeah, it's so not practical for sure. I kept on going sure. the way I was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you take lessons? I don't... Not on guitar. No. No, because it didn't really seem applicable to to um, my kind of music. Right. Like, I was already having that problem. Um, okay, so now we, like, progressed up from, like, there was high school, and then I started going to college, and I wanted to major in music because that was what I loved. And But they didn't have, you, know, you couldn't major in, like, rock and roll. You sure as hell couldn't major in alternative weird sort of punk band music right <laughs> you know um so what was i going to do you know go back to playing classical piano that was kind of cool i i you know that's i don't mind doing that but to be at the level that you'd have to be at i'd have to be devoting a lot of time and i would prefer to devote that time towards learning guitar and having a band and, and then as far as guitar lessons it seemed like that also had that same conflict, but but maybe not conflict, but just less of a use, because the people teaching lessons were probably like for people that wanted to be like a metal kind of a player, right? And that wasn't the direction I was going. I mean, I guess I sort of did later, but when I was starting, it was much more like straightforward, punky kind of stuff, or '60s kind of stuff, or surfy kind of stuff. Okay, so when you're in college, is that when you got to Damascus happening? Yeah. So in the leaving train, now I already said a very good thing about Bonnie James. You know, I will be grateful forever that he introduced me to alternative music. Right. You know? Um, but he he's not an easy person to be in a band with. I've heard, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that from a few I people. Mean, oh, my God. Um, so... I was wanting to leave that band um, pretty quickly. I, I'm actually astonished that I stayed with it as long as I did. Mm -hmm. And I think I only did because I didn't want to, like, not have a band, you know? Like, I really, really wanted to do it, you know? I mean, I was very inspired and driven. And uh, anyway, so then to Damascus was really hard for me to, to get started like i wouldn't say we hit our stride until like 85 so that's three years of doing not very much you know like getting a couple gigs most of that time was spent looking for drummers right or having a drummer but still looking for that drummer <laughs> you know like where the heck is our drummer or um you know just playing with the wrong people who didn't understand the music you know, back then it, it was it was definitely you were doing something alternative if you were alternative. It really was alternative. You know, like most people would have not heard of any of the bands, not liked any of the music. You know, just like a mainstream person, like somebody you might run into at college or in the store or something. You know, if they knew the even the genre of music you were into. You, you felt like, oh, you know, bro. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was definitely like a niche at that time. I mean, way back in like 82, 83, 84. I mean, there was enough of a thing. People went to clubs and all that, but I'm, I'm talking about in the general population. Anyway, it was hard for me to get band members. Being a girl really did not help. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the first uh, bass player that I got, actually, she was the one that came up with that name. So she was a girl, too. <laughs> and uh, having the two of us trying to find a, a drummer, like, we didn't care, male, female, whatever. Yeah. Um, this is Tyra you're talking it, about? Um, actually, that was this other girl named Sue. Okay. Um, but a lot of, like, I had a guy say, like, straight out, like, I don't know, it's like, I kind of like your music, but, like, a band, band should be like a group of guys, you know, like, mm. hanging out and you know, like you'd have people like that. Like, I don't want to play with girls, you know, mm-hmm. or even if they don't admit it to their, your face, they wouldn't maybe feel right. You know, like, like their friends would be like, so what you doing with drums now? Oh, I got this new band. It's so great. It's with these two girls. Like that would right. sound weird. You know, it, it just, it was a barrier back then. I don't Especially think it when the, anymore. when the leader is a woman. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it was no, it was definitely a barrier, yeah. and and then other bands like didn't want to help you. I mean, so much of the getting a band started is networking and right. favors and stuff like that. And I was never really very good at that. And there's there are some people, <coughs> Courtney Love, <coughs> in your Lori. <coughs> excuse me. There are some people. <laughs> there are some people who are able to use their femaleness to their advantage right and you know be really cute and really personable and get people to you know get them wrapped around their little finger and i could just never do that that was never my style never something i wanted to do i just wanted to be like like everyone else just playing in a band why does it have to be a big deal you know and uh so in my case it turned out to be much more of a barrier it might have been a help for them but Anyway, as far as bands not wanting to help you, yeah. if they feel like challenged at all, they kind of wouldn't be as much into your band. Like nobody wants to have a band open up that's going to have this girl that's going to shred on guitar. Like yeah. their guitar player's not going to want that. <laughs> you know. Now in the beginning, I wasn't like so shredding, and I definitely didn't have the ego to say something like that. Right. But even still, we you know we we kind of. It was not an easy road at first, for sure, for sure, for sure. You mentioned Inger. Did I read right that you played with her briefly in a pre-Nymphs band? Oh, that's another weird story, is she also grew up right near where I grew up, and we went to elementary school together, and we were best friends. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that weird? Because we were friends for like a year or, or so, and then her family moved to New Jersey. But we had been, like, best friends. Like, I actually went out to New Jersey. My family went out there and visited our relatives. And then I visited her. And um, we, you know, wrote letters and stuff. And then we kind of drifted apart. And then some one of us would send a letter. And we found that we were living these weird kind of parallel lives. Like, we both gravitated towards being into um, punk bands. You know, we we didn't hear from each other from, I don't know, how many of you in second grade? Like nine, I think? Or eight? Something like that. And not really much contact until we're like 16, and we send a letter, oh, yeah, I'm into, you know, X and, you know, these obscure bands, and really, no kidding! You know, the Sex Pistols and whatever kind of punk stuff. And um, anyway, so we both gravitated towards alternative music and being in a band. Right. And... Uh, then 
and art. We we actually I think that's why we became friends originally. We you know we were the kids in the class that liked to draw. Okay. So anyway, uh, she moved back to LA, and she didn't have the nymphs going yet. She wanted to do some kind of band, and I played with them a little bit. Um, she had brought she had brought a bass player out, and I don't remember if we actually even had a drummer at the time or. We had like a temporary person or something. It didn't last very long, um, but our friendship has lasted in this kind of weird, distant way. You know, mm-hmm. like we're friends on Facebook, and we'll be like, "Hey, how you doing?" And you know, and my long lost buddy, and whatever. It was just kind of weird that we took that our lives took these parallel right. courses, independently of each other. <laughs> Completely independently, yeah. And then Manfred, who Manfred Hofer, who had played. In the leaving trance, he he later played with the Nymphs too. Right, yeah. And I think their other guitarist, Sam, joined the later leaving trains. Sam Merrick, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I figured out, you know, that six degrees of separation thing. Right, yeah. Um, well, before that came out, I thought this was my idea, but I guess it wasn't. <laughs> um, but I made this. We were bored in the van on tour, you know, driving miles and miles and hours and hours, and so I started drawing this chart of different linking the bands to each other like let's say if i played with manfred and then the manfred played with the nymphs now i'm linked to the nymphs and then if the nymphs have somebody who played in you know i don't know Cayuse or something and then they had somebody in that band that was linked to whoever you know it was like all these bands Eventually, all they they all link to each other in this big web. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we're we're actually only like three or four steps from even older famous bands like Led Zeppelin, for sure, and yep. The Doors, and people like that. Speaking uh, of which, here's a band I wanted to ask you about: is the pre-Opal band Clay Allison? Oh wow, yeah, that was um, that was kind of weird. We knew them. Because when I first joined the Leaving Trains, that was where I went to so-called audition. Right. <laughs> um, calling it audition is using that word very, very <laughs> loosely. Because, yeah. I mean, like I said, we were just so bad. And they didn't have a drummer at the time. And actually, they didn't even have a guitarist. It was really just James with an idea of wanting to have a band. And he had gotten, he had played with Manfred before. So Manfred would come back very soon. So they don't exactly tell that story the same way that I tell it, but this is my version. My version is that James and Manfred played together in something they called the Mongrel, mm-hmm. and there was a guy named Ken in that who left and joined the Circle Jerks, and they claim stole one of their songs too, but I don't know who wrote the song. And then that didn't go anywhere and broke up, and then James wanted to start a new band, and he put out an ad, and then I answered the ad, and he got together some people to be there when when people would come to audition. So there was James and David Roback, from, who would later be in Mavi Star and all right. that. Yep. And it was his house. He lived in this crazy like mansion kind of a place. Like His family came from money, and they had a... I don't know. To me, it looks like an estate, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> big giant trees and like this driveway you go down and all this. And they had this extra little house. And that's what they um, 
rehearsed in. Mm -hmm. And actually, Susanna Hoffs was there because she was she was friends with those people, and she would later go on to be in the Bengals. Oh yeah. Um, so, so that's why I'm saying how like incestuous it all is. Yeah. Was. So they were there, and and we just kind of jammed, and then um, we really just said, let's do this again because we just didn't know any better and didn't know anyone else that would consent to playing with us <laughs> either on their side or mine so we're like oh really you'll play with me again okay great i'll be in your bench yay you know it's kind of like that it was it wasn't like you know later on like years later when i'm looking for drummers and i'm like you know serious you know like we're planning a tour and you know you have to know odd meters and blah 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 you know it wasn't like that at all this was just like you know brand new raw people Okay, so I played with James, and that was at David Roback's house. Then I went on and did the leaving trains and left the leaving trains and was doing to Damascus, and David Roback knew me through the trains, and so that's why he thought of me when they wanted someone to play keyboard. And I said straight out, I go, well, right now I'm into playing guitar and playing stuff that's fast and angry. But, you know, I do like psychedelic stuff too, and they were saying, it's just, just for this tour, and we'll see what happens. And uh, the idea of going on a tour was like, wow, you know, that's huge. Of course I'll do it. So I did that tour with them. And then I quit after we came back because it just wasn't what I wanted to do musically. Right. And then after that, they found somebody else, and they did Opal. And then I guess that turned into Mazzy Star and, right. and all that stuff. Now, it seems like the two Damascus lineup kind of solidified around uh, the Come to Your Senses album. And I believe you toured that record as well. So, yeah, I was saying that that early time was difficult to find the right people, but it finally did kind of come together with this um, lady, Tyra, mm -hmm. Tyra Von Paganhart. Um, that wasn't actually her real last name, but <laughs> she um, she chose it. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, and, um, and we got this guy, David Winogron, on drums. And um, finally, at long last, um, I had people that actually seemed like they liked being in my band and really actually wanted to do it, you know, and enjoyed the songs and were happy about a new song. Right. And, you know, I was, it had really taken a while. Like, I always had something that, like, there was something wrong with the person. They weren't the right person for the band or I wasn't the right person for them or whatever. And uh, so... Getting them, yeah, it did finally solidify. And then we started we started playing a lot in L.A. Um, and finally, finally, I mean, I say finally, but it was like three years. And it seemed like other of my friends that had started up at the same time, you know, had gotten a lot farther as far as, you know, success for their bands and stuff like that. So I, I feel like I was a slow grower. But anyway, so, yeah, around... 1985-86 we kind of finally hit our stride mm -hmm. and we were playing a bunch and we did the come to your senses we did this first album to come that was our own money and then that second one was um restless it was part of enigma yeah um and they didn't really do um, anything for us <laughs> they printed out the records then we said we would go on this tour and i had already bought my own van and um, found a booking agent through somewhere else 
And really all I wanted for them was just get some records to be in the store so that when we play a gig, people can go the next day and find a record in a record store. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they didn't do anything. They were pretty much falling apart. And I think it's a typical story that happens to bands is you get signed to a label and then the person who signed you is going to be your biggest supporter. And the people who signed other bands are going to push their bands. And if the person who signed you like leaves or something or moves to a different position, you're kind of screwed. And that was one of the things that happened to us. You know, we, the, the, like our big supporter at the label kind of fell away. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was stuff going on with the label. I don't think they did a whole lot after that. But anyway, it was definitely like a really low budget tour. And um, I would have never even been able to go on tour because it wasn't like the band was popular enough to do that. But I had done that tour with Clay Allison. So I kind of made friends along the way and, mm-hmm. you know, knew what clubs to go to. And remember, like before the Internet, a lot of this stuff was information was so much harder to come by right yeah you know so it it i never would have been able to do that tour if i hadn't done the clay allison tour so we did that and then the sad thing was that the two damascus people found that they didn't like touring they liked being in the band they liked recording um they were great in so many ways and we were like friends too um you know it was like a good compatible relationship you know not with no fighting or anything but neither of them liked touring and they just didn't want to do it they just really put their foot down mm-hmm. not together but individually they both had their own reasons right and i was all about going on tour i was like if you can't tour you can't really make a go of having a band you know it's like one of the rules <laughs> yeah. like, that's what bands do they tour i mean that's kind of like saying you don't like playing your instrument or something <laughs> how can you not tour yeah. you know the only way you can not tour is if you already spent 20 years touring then maybe you could get away with it right. <laughs> anyway so that was kind of a not resolvable difference that we had there mm-hmm. so it was kind of sad actually how did you then become swa how did that happen? Ah, so um, I was trying to push to Damascus, get us a record label, a manager, a booking agent, you know, just trying to get everything for us that we needed. And because I was doing everything myself. And um, anyway, so one of the people that I sent things to was SST. And then I called to follow up. I was hoping, you know, who knows, maybe they would want to put out the next record because Restless wasn't doing anything. I'm not even sure if they had kind of dissolved yeah. at that point. I don't remember. But anyway, I was definitely looking. And uh, it just was luck that Chuck was the one that answered the phone. And I don't know if you've ever talked to Chuck. I have, but, yeah. Okay, so he's even worse than I am as far <laughs> as, like, he can just talk. You know, if you do not stop him, it will be... 2083 and he'll be still talking to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know i can be pretty bad too so um anyway so we got in this really long conversation and he was really actually looking for somebody to come play guitar in swa who actually i didn't really know anything about it at the time um like i was into the Minuteman and um to some extent black flag and 
like DC3 that grew out of that, and a couple other SST bands I just can't think of right now. But I hadn't really, I hadn't followed every SST band by any means, and so I didn't know what it was going to be at all, really. But anyway, we had this nice conversation, that just the way that we approached music, you know, with the, from feeling and just wanting to jam and go where it goes and that sounded so cool and he's like come down we we have rehearsal time booked tonight you know come play with us and I was like me really okay <laughs> you know and I jumped in my car and like drive to the other side of the town and um so we played and it was cool mm-hmm. I mean they're not they weren't easy to play with at first I could see why they had trouble finding a guitar player because they just jumped into a weird jam you know kind of unconventional and a lot of people might not might not be able to it was kind of like riding a bucking horse you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which i thought was really fun and great and i you know i don't know he did to gel pretty good and um so we're just like let's jam again and then we jammed again and let's jam again you know like the next week or then you know anyway so the next thing i know he was booking shows and booking recording time and it just kind of happened like that. Like there wasn't really a plan to it. And I certainly was not going to leave my own goals. Right. You know, because I wanted to have like my band that would be my songs and my kind of sound that I came up with. And, you know, that was sort of what I was really driven to do. Yeah. And so it, it was going to have to be a side project to some extent, but um, it was cool. Those were, those were good times. And, I don't want to be like egotistic, but personally, I think it was the best time of Swa. Yeah, many people say that for sure. And so you know that I'm being fair. The best time of the leaving trains, I think, was after I left. I don't. I was not right for that band. You know, as soon as I left, and they didn't have keyboards anymore, and they they you know started to hit their stride, they got kind of cool. So it, I'm not saying this from like an ego point of view. You know, like if it's if it's true, it's true. So I think that was a good plot time. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun and everything, but eventually it was like time started conflicting, and I was wanting to do my thing, and then I started doing the nature record. And did you know, know that was going to be on SST? Was that something you that you you and Chuck talked about? Well, it was something that I definitely talked about. Yep. <laughs> And he was kind of like, yeah, sure, cool. You know, he was kind of nice. But Greg Ginn, um, I don't think he really ever liked me that much. Like, I don't, I don't know if it was just one of these things, like people don't always like each other, or if it had to do with the female guitar player thing, which always seemed to rear up at the worst times, or if it was maybe he's that way with all other guitar players or whatever it was uh, without Chuck on my side. I don't think they would have put out that record. And if they had both been like Chuck, I think the record could have done a lot more. Okay. Like um, I got, I was actually kind of disappointed because later after I left Swah and then started really doing the Sylvia thing, I didn't feel like SST was, promoting it the way they could but maybe it didn't have as much to do with me as i thought it did because 
at that time period, they had started signing a whole lot of different bands. For sure, yeah. And yeah, and that's that's hard to maintain. You know, like money's always going to be difficult, even when things are doing well. It's, it's not like it's an easy industry or something. So, and I'm always thankful to Chuck. And I actually played with him again recently, like just a couple of years back. Oh wow! On this project he was going to do, and then he got. Um, I guess they got that offer to do the flag thing or right. something. And anyway, he he kind of stopped doing it. But um, it could have been cool. It was with um, uh, Lucky from Oh wow! Circle Jerks what was drums. that? What was yeah. that sounding like? It didn't have a name. We never we never got it to that point. Um, but it was kind of like um, weird Chuck songs, sort of like Slaw had sounded kind of right. More songs than Slaw, or at least than than the flaw I was in, like, right. you know, four times this and then four times that, <laughs> you know, as opposed to, like, all the loose jamming stuff. But, yeah, we only played a, a few, few times. Okay. Well, I don't know, maybe, like, ten times. And then, you know, we, we were really talking about it. Like, he was trying to get a singer and, you know, see where it goes. So I guess my main point was that um, I like to think that I remain on good terms with Chuck and I will always you know, respect him and mm-hmm. wish the best for him. And and his kid is, like, amazing, the Milo. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great guitar player. Yeah. Yep. And I, I really like Chuck's new vibe. Well, it's not new anymore, but it's, um, you know, I'm talking about the 2000s, not the 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, his whole nice and friendly thing. Yep. You yep. know, he's just he's just a good guy, you know, so... Um, I, I hope I don't ever say anything bad about Chuck. If I do, it's not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so let's talk about the, the Nature record then. It was recorded at Radio Tokyo, where a lot of uh, SST oh, albums yeah. were made. And th- three different engineers worked on it in January of 88. Oh, yeah. Richard Andrews, Michael James, and Ethan James, I think all kind of the house engineers there at Radio Tokyo. Do you, yeah. re- do you remember the sessions? Yeah. Um, actually, like I had worked with Ethan a lot Yeah. from when I first started to Damascus. Even in the terrible early days when I didn't really have a band properly together, um, I could still work on recording stuff, you know. And um, like the, that first to Damascus album had been done with Jason Kahn, who drummed in the Leaving Trains and a bunch of other bands yeah. that we had friends in common, but he was never going to be in a band with me. He had other bands that he preferred to be in, but he'll still play on a recording, right? So at least I could do that. Like during that hard time of trying to get to Damascus to happen, I had recorded a bunch of stuff. Nothing ever came up that came of it, but I had been at Radio Tokyo a bunch at the point. Right. Also, he was kind of like the go-to studio for all the alternative stuff for quite some time. It kind of goes back to what I was saying before of, of, you know, alternative actually really being alternative back then. And so he got the reputation as being like the guy who understood how these bands wanted to be, you know, that they didn't want to be a metal band, you know, or a dance band or something. You know, the music wasn't going to be some genre that they never ever had heard or listened to, you know. Ethan was a really cool guy. Um, I don't know how much you know about him. A fair amount, um, yeah. Yeah, he'd been in Blue Cheer yeah. like back in the day, and uh, 
Um, and then he just started up that studio from scratch, just like in a house. And looking back, I, it actually wasn't such a great studio. <laughs> you know, like they really didn't have a very good sound. And, you know, I, I definitely have a lot of complaints about it. But at the time, it was definitely the best thing to do. And, of course, budget was part of it, too. You know, so if you could spend a lot of money, you could have found a studio. I'm talking about amongst the affordable studios. Anyway, uh, Ethan was just like a really cool person to work with and a really cool person to talk to. And uh, I wish he had done all of the sessions, actually. Nothing against the other two guys, but um, uh, it just started to happen that right around that time. Remember I said SST signed a billion bands? Well, Ethan was recording all those bands. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. He kind of had more than he could handle. So that's when he brought on the um, other people to help out and record sessions so Ethan was there to do the drum tracks mm -hmm. and the mixing and then the other guys did what should be the easier part right of you know the overdubs anyway they were cool too I have no complaint of in fact Rich Andrews I did the next record with one thing okay. um, and he went on to you know do a lot more in the recording world and really, you know I'm not sure exactly what but I do know he was with it and kind of moved up to, you know, more fancy studios and. The rhythm section, Dave Childs. We know we've talked to him. He, you probably know him from Lawndale. I'm guessing is how he. Exactly. Yeah. Connected with him. Tom yeah. Shannon. Tell um, me about Tom. Oh, Tom was another super cool guy, and a sad story. You know, he's dead, right? Yeah, I did know that. Yeah. It was really sad. Like he he got this brain tumor. And, oh no. Um. Yeah, um, but what um, he was another like really interesting person, just somebody who had his his own um, you know his own vision, and he was kind of playing with my band the way I was playing with Swa. You know, it was cool and it was an opportunity to get gigs and possibly do tours and record and you know kind of get your foot in the door, meet people and stuff. But his ultimate goal was his own band with his songs that he would write and he would sing and he would play them how he wanted them to be played. So I, I got it. You know, it's like, that's cool. If you can live with this though for a while, I'm sure you like you to play because he was a great bass player. Right. You know? Um, and uh, he was another person like, that was just like a really cool person. Just like really interesting to talk to. And, you know, he pioneered that haircut that everybody has to this day where they, cut their hair like really short, like almost shaved, or either shaved or almost shaved on the sides, right. and then have it long down to their shoulders on the other part. He did that before I saw that anywhere. So he gets credit <laughs> for that. He's for what it's worth. <laughs> haircut pioneer. <laughs> he was, yeah. and he was a pioneer. Just He had kind of a advanced way of thinking, you know, like we would talk about weird books and he was into Ayn Rand, which I'm not, mm -hmm. but um, it wasn't, like, probably somebody now who's into that, it would come with a lot of implications. For sure, yeah. You know, like, yeah. you must be a Trump person, and yeah. you must be this and that. It didn't come with those implications back then. It yeah. was it was more like being somebody who's, like, looking into, you know, sort of philosophy and yeah. whatever like that. Um, 
Neil Peart from Rush was an. <laughs> I don't think he would uh, be a be a Trump supporter, you know. But, but see, I th- I blame Ann Rand for ruining my band because um, I'm saying that kind of sarcastically. <laughs> well, because one of the lessons he learned was, you know, to follow your thing. You know, this whole egoism thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, so it was. It's hard to be in a band with somebody who's like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you have to give and take. You know, that's kind of a part of a, being in a band. So we sort of. We eventually were too much at odds about that. Like when I thought he was playing bass that was too complicated for a um, for a simple song. Right. You know, like he was he was being rush on what should have been a more straightforward song. Also, introduced me to Don Medina, who's a drummer. Who, um, I mean, Dave Childs is is awesome and super cool. Right. And another p- person that I would say, like, oh, you know, he's like this really cool guy, too. I can't remember exactly right now why he left, but I think that was his idea, like mm-hmm. something in his personal life or something. But uh, then I played with Tom and his friend Don Medina from his band, and those guys were both into Rush and just whatever crazy stuff. And <laughs> this Don Medina guy, you know, like I had been for like at that point at that point it might have been 10 years maybe the whole time that period that you and I have just been talking about so for that whole time I was more like a punky kind of person like I put my whole like classical piano person you know like sort of hidden in my past like I just I told you about it in those years I would not have told you that because I would have been like ashamed you know you can't be you can't have like ever played classical music. What the heck? <laughs> That's not punk rock, you know. And now I'm an adult. I don't care what people are gonna think. But anyway, um, so I'd put that all away because you know, because you know how music was in the '70s and it was just overdone. And you know, punk rock came along and was like pure and emotion and and honest and angry and that's how that fit my mood and. Um, Anyway, so, but Tom and Don were really into getting really crazy musically. So it was um, sort of funny in a way because he, like, Don played a double bass kit with 17 cymbals, <laughs> two sets of toms, you know, like your normal he, toms. Like he really was rough. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. And loading with this guy <laughs> and traveling, you know, with their tr- carrying all that shit around and all the stands that he had to go with it. Oh my God. And he would do these silly things. Like if the song would like, you know, it'd go like, or whatever, you know, in that little tiny gap right there, he'd throw the stick, you know, pulling in the air, <laughs> catch it and come right back on the beat, you know, <laughs> doing all this kind of stuff that it wasn't exactly like appropriate but he was also really good too Mm -hmm. you know he was stable he was solid he was um he didn't speed up like so many drummers you know i mean he was a real drummer he was the real deal you know so um anyway so we played and i'll kind of admit like you know i got influenced by them too like that's when i started doing putting odd meters into songs Mm -hmm. and like nature is much more straightforward. I think every song on that one was a four-four rhythm, yep. and there's some jams and stuff. But there's 
not totally complex songs. Yeah. And I started getting more and more that way as time went by. And it's all Tom's fault and Anne Rand's <laughs> and crazy 17 simple songs. It's their fault. <laughs> Tell me, Sylvia, about the, the Tower of Ashes video. Do you remember making that? Oh, yeah. Actually, you know what? I have to give all the credit to the guy, um, Paul O'Brien, okay. who's a friend of mine with filmmaking ambition. And so that was totally his thing. Like, I, I, I can't take credit for any of the ideas or anything. That was totally his thing. But I was really happy to get to do it. I was happy with what he came up with. And I wish we could have done more. Um, Did it get I don't know. played? I look at a lot of... Um, I don't think it got played a whole lot. I know that like Swa Arroyo yeah. got on MTV in their regular rotation thing. That's a great um, video. We didn't get anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. That was a really cool um, experience to do. And those were good times. Yeah. The nature time, I don't know. I feel like a lot of, like when I look back on my days, the things I regret were, I feel like, I had, um, like, I, I took on too many things myself, mm. you know, and if I'd had more support, I think I would have done better, and I should have gotten better at getting that kind of support for myself. I know I just said that this other guy totally did the video, <laughs> so <laughs> he did take that off my hands, right. um, and there were some things, you know, there, there were definitely some things. I wish we could have gotten, um, I don't really want to talk bad about S SST, but Let's just chuck it up to timing, okay? I'm not going to blame any person, just timing that when I was on the road trying to promote nature over in Europe, then they weren't getting records over there, and it was the same thing that had happened to us with Restless, and then next thing I knew, SST was, you know, kind of, I think, foundering a bit because they had too many bands, and, um, you know, it just seemed like, like timing didn't work in my favor, and that led to not having good support. Like we've gotten good support from our label and more money to record things and stuff like that. Maybe things would be a little better. Yeah. And I should have worked more on my singing too. Did people comment on your singing? They didn't usually comment positively. Mm. <laughs> I got a lot of criticism about my singing and I think it's well-deserved. I, I don't. I, um, I mean... It, well, it's very honest singing, yeah. you know? You can you got to give it that. It's not fake, and it's not, doesn't sound like anybody else. And um, I just wish I could have just kind of been a little more tight, you know, like hmm. not been out of tune and just a little more full with my voice and stuff like that. You touched on this earlier. It seemed like, you know, around the time you, like you said, you were touring in Europe, and you seemed to get... Uh, start getting a fair amount of press, but a lot of the stuff that I've found mentions gender and will even say things like, you know, sexy guitar player, Sylvia Juncosa. Did that stuff bother you? Um, yeah. See, like I said, I wish I could have just, you know, been one of the guys. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> like it didn't even occur to me when I started in a band that that would be a weird thing to do yeah. or that if you were in a band that it would be even weirder to decide you want to be lead guitar player and with, with a kind of bold style, you know, 
definitely not even a lead player. Like, I mean, it happened all the time that people were saying things like, you know, I'd play them a recording of the band, and they'd be like, oh, I kind of like this. I like the guitar. Who's playing guitar? And I said, well, I already told you that I'm the guitar player. And they'd go, no, no, I, I mean, who's playing the lead guitar? You know, they'd say things like that, like, all the time, because people just assumed that female people did not do that. And I had never assumed that female people didn't do that or I just never thought about it yeah. <laughs> you know I, until everybody was always saying it left and right and left and right you know and then like right around um the nature time I decided well I should maybe try to capitalize it on it and I started putting you know, like guitar goddess Sylvia in the ad stuff and you know um just going well I, I, I should get if I can get something out of it I deserve to because it's for sure, you know, been a hindrance up till now. But always and forever, what I wanted originally and which I always wish I had and kind of did have with To the Masters was like a, a band, you know, like, like, remember I told you the guy in the very beginning was like, you know, a band, a band should be like a group of guys, you know, right, right. It should be, you know, like, a, like friends. It doesn't have to be guy, guys, but. I mean, a group of people who are friends and have the same goal. So many people, you hear that they, you know, that that, you know, the the band they want they were looking for a gang or, um, you know, that connection, the friendship, the camaraderie. Yeah. 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 That's a big um, part of it for sure. Yeah, and that's one thing I think I I never really had, even even though I did have some good people in in uh, during some time period. Yeah. Like Tom Shannon, you know, I always knew he had his other goal that he was going to leave when he thought he would be able to complete those goals, you know. And then the next bass player I had, Barney Firk and Chris Fry, I, I borrowed them from another band, that, right. like hired their rhythm section and to play on the record. And that was cool. They were cool guys and we got along and um, I don't think they had a problem with me or anything. But again, it was like I'm borrowing them from somebody else's band, you know, or actually hiring, renting them from somebody else's band, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it would have been really cool to, and, and then also being solo, like having my name on the thing. That's the part of, of it, I a, think. That's, I was just going to say, I think, you know, having the band under your name and, you know, you're writing the songs and stuff, I think, I think it probably makes that a bit more difficult. Like it's your band, sure. you're the leader, you know. But, you know, if I had the right people, I would have been able to give some of that up, yeah. you know? And I know it, makes, it definitely makes it, like, harder. But at the time, like, right after To Damascus, like, when you're trying to promote a band, usually if it's a new band, you'll mention members that were in other bands somebody might have heard of. Right, yeah. You know, yep. so that they're not something totally brand new born yesterday yep. so am i really going to write to damascus featuring sylvia jincosa who used to be in the leaving trains and then in clay allison featuring david roback of the rain parade and kendra smith of the dream syndicate and so many band names that you're mentioning <laughs> and so many of them have like big long confusing names like if, if you sort of said something like sylvia formerly of the bangs you know or something but this was like Pseudomastus featuring Sylvia Jincosa, formerly of Swa featuring Chuck Dukowski, who was formerly of Black Flag, 
and also Sylvia, formerly of Play Allison, who featured David Roback, who was formerly of Rain Parade, and Kendra Smith, who was formerly of Dream Syndicate, <laughs> and Sylvia had also been formerly of The Leaving Train. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then there's not any space left to write anything else, and right. it just completely confused everyone. And I didn't have anything to do with any of those then, so I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to put my own name, Yeah. you know? And the other thing, I got this from Ethan, who was like, you know, I told you I recorded with him for years. Like, he was more of a constant, I would say, in my musical endeavors than a lot of the band members that came and went between, mm-hmm. like, 82 and 86. And he said, he goes, whatever you do, you know, in music career, keep your name on it. You know, that's the one thing they can't take that from you, you know? And the way I saw it was, like, so many people came and left bands, even bands that were less like a one-person show than my thing, um, you know, that were more of a, more collaborative. Even bands like that would break up. You know, how many drummers did the leaving trains go through? No kidding. <laughs> or the Nymphs, you know, or any other Black Flag or SWA, any band you can name, right? And you don't want to start over after all that. And then if you're kind of just one person hiding behind a band name, like let's say I'd called it, you know, I don't know, the Gunslingers, <laughs> you yeah. know? So it would be like, well, how many Gunslingers are there? Well, actually, there's really only one. <laughs> <laughs> it's Sylvia, who used to be in the Leaving Train featuring, but, ah! <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That was how it came to be that I went solo, so to speak. Okay. And put my name on it. And then... And that also allowed me to play acoustic shows. Like if your drummer bails like the day before a gig, for example, or your bass player does the same, or maybe even both of them, or if you're, I don't know, on tour and your bass player decides to go home in the middle. Um, anyway, all of these things happened at various times. Right. Um, so if you get stuck like that, you can play solo acoustic by yourself and you still have just that name up there. Yeah, there's there's definitely like some advantages. Yeah, I was going to ask the title track to the record. Nature is acoustic, and I know you did some acoustic shows, so that's cool. Uh, Can I ask about a few of the other tracks on here? Oh yeah. Of course, one of the most famous is the "Lick My Pussy" Eddie Van Halen track. But you were a fan, I think, (laughs) of Eddie. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, not like a fan, fan like buy all the records, try to learn all the songs, but somebody, like, I mean, how many guitarists have really, truly put their mark on the landscape? Yeah. You know, there's Hendrix, there's Eddie Van Halen, and and who else? Yeah. You know, I mean, you can name <laughs> a lot of well-respected people, yeah. you know, Jimmy Page, or but who, like, really changed Like, the revolutionized landscape. it, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, would put, I would say those two, really. Yeah. Yep, you're right. And me. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the idea, what was going through my crazy head at that point in time was um, was that so many bands were, um, you know, just being really, like, kind of brash, you know, and putting something, like, sort of naughty, you know, like, I don't know, Led Zeppelin, you know, squeeze my lid until the juice run down my lid, you know. Right. And... I was just going like, I can be more brash than you. <laughs> Check this out. Yeah. You know, and it was just kind of like my, sort of like a war cry. Right. Or like a battle cry. You know, it was like, 
me just being really bold of the world okay or against the world or some, something like that if that makes sense tower of ashes we talked about was that kind of the you chose that to make the video i'm assuming that was kind of the you know the the one you maybe wanted to push as the single yeah i mean it seemed like the most accessible yep. i guess yep um and you know i remember now right now that song was actually done with a drum machine yeah because of some kind of drummer discrepancy okay Ugh, i don't even remember now but what i basically remember is it's hard to keep drummers in bands yep. and you're very right about it being even harder if you're solo mm-hmm. yeah it, that definitely seemed like the most accessible and you know something people would kind of like like usually my, my words are kind of weird and obscure for people mm-hmm. or for some people not everybody but and this one it actually had you know like a chorus and wasn't vague and you know it was about this um i'm not sure if this is actually true or just a legend but i read somewhere in reading about the middle ages was you know they had all these weird like torture devices and things that they would do to people that were prisoners or mm-hmm. whatever and the tower of ashes was they would um execute somebody by putting having building a whole big giant tower filling it with ashes taking them up to the top and just dropping them in Ooh. and they would just <laughs> just <laughs> kind of sink into ashes and suffocate which just seems like worse than any other torture yeah. i don't know why i had to make a song about that but <laughs> it just seemed like <laughs> a weird concept you mentioned you know when you were in high school or whatever being into 60s music i hear some 60s sounds on this record like dark world for example there's even some backwards guitar and stuff yeah i i think i wouldn't go like oh i want to do this to make it sound like that person right but kind of like you can't help but sort of ingest things and then when you start creating things it's gonna be in there somehow maybe Mm -hmm. um so yeah i would say the most of the stuff that I listen to, like, for example, one of my, I think probably if you had to pin me down to one favorite album of all time, I would probably say uh, uh, Forever Changes by Love. Yep. Um, and uh, a Spirit, I really liked them. And a lot of these kind of weird bands that would end up on compilations. In, in fact, there was a time period in the 80s when I used to wish that I had come of age in the 60s <laughs> instead of coming of age in the 80s. Yeah. Because <laughs> it seemed to really just be such a cool time period and the music was so good and people were active in politics and in a way that I at the time thought was a good thing you know like protest against the war that you can't argue with that (laughs) you know and uh but then in the 80s like okay there there was the 60s and and the 70s when people got really environmentally conscious and which is also partly why I chose nature as you know, like one of my issues. So yeah, there was a lot of cool bands going around in, in that time too. Yeah. And then in the eighties it seemed like there had there was a real line between what was mainstream, like Billy Idol, Michael Jackson, Madonna came out during that time. Right. And then in what could be considered rock there was poison and all the hair metal stuff. 
And then there was the alternative dance, like on the other side of this line we had drawn in the sand. That's the way I saw it. Okay. Let me ask you about M. Siegel, courtesy of Paper Bag. He plays some percussion on, on here. Did you bring him in, or was he uh, was he someone Ethan or one of the other engineers brought in? Oh, I, I met him because we had played gigs together, and like Paper Bag and Two Damascus played together a, oh, cool. a number of times. Oh, that's and, cool. That's a cool um, bill. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, we did a number of gigs at this little record store called Bebop Records. Yeah. And I mean, it was just this tiny little thing, and it was anyway. Um, Zoog's Rift played there but, quite yeah. a bit too. I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they were friends with Zoog's and and um, some other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he's another guy that I would say is like a cool dude. In fact, we played recently again in Man Ray, which was a band that was active in LA oh, wow. for a few years. I don't know if you would have heard of it. I don't, know mm. if, I don't think they ever really recorded anything. Mm. Um, I think everybody who was in it was doing it just for fun. Right. Yeah, I'm still in touch with him to, to this day. In fact, I tried to have him play with, um, with us. Like after I went to Europe, Actually, we kind of left out this chunk of the story. So, okay, so after the SST time, I started, I was touring Europe, I was touring the U.S. a lot, and Europe was just so much better. Yeah. In fact, I figured out I could even just live as a musician over there, you know, and not keep coming back and worrying about rent and day job and stuff. It was actually viable. And so I just got a one-way ticket. <laughs> and I was over there for like, I don't know, like five or six years. Mm-hmm. And um, then when I came back, I didn't get things started right away. So there was a bit of like a hiatus time. And then around 2009, I think, I decided to actually get things started again. And he was one of the first people that I got in contact with from the old days. And he was still playing and everything. And we were going to play together, but then something happened in his personal life and he couldn't do it and blah, 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 and this and that. But yeah, like we still are in contact and right on. Um, he's, a, he's a cool dude. And their bass player too, George Radai. Yeah. Um, well, I was so honored back in the nature time period when, um, you know, like we talked or whatever and then they're like, you know, we should just jam. You know, just the three of us, George and me and M. Siegel. And, um, I'm like, heck yeah. So we only did it the once, I think, or maybe twice, you know, in, in somebody's garage where they were currently rehearsing. That's awesome. But I was just so honored to play with them because they were kind of like, you know, the real deal, sort of like George taught bass. I think he might even still do that to this day. Yeah. And, um, you know, they were kind of like expert, in my opinion. For improvising. And, um, yeah, yeah, and I was so, like, honored to, like, really, you'll jump with me? <laughs> like, um, so that was cool. Yeah. Let me ask you about the cover art for this. You painted it. Are you a visual artist, or did you just do this? I know you did some artwork for some of the other albums you've played on. Were you doing art continually, or was it just for, specifically for the album? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by doing art. Like... I would like to do more with art. In fact, while we're talking right now, I'm drawing pictures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, 
I like to make things. In fact, I even have these things I'm making right now called art cubes, where they're like little blocks of wood okay. that are um, about four inches by four by four by four by four by four. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then I paint something on each side of them. Oh, cool. And I was thinking I could maybe sell them on the internet or something, and I haven't sold any. I've so far I've given a few away to friends. But um, and other than that, which is nothing, um, <laughs> I've never done art like for anything real. But I love it, you know. Like I, I would like to do more, you yeah. know. I would like people to see it, you know. Like mm-hmm. I put some things up on my um, Sylvia website, which is not up right now, but the last website I had up for my music stuff, um, it had a whole section of stuff that I'd drawn or or painted mostly like either marking pens, mm-hmm. pen and uh, pen and uh, oh, sorry, um, I don't know why they call it pen and ink because pens usually have ink, <laughs> but they call it pen and ink. Right. Um, Doesn't really do, need I, to I, be specified. I, I, yeah, it's kind of redundant, but anyway, so um, but, so pen and or marking pen. So pen and ink that's like just black and white, and then marking pen with color and pencil and then i've done a bit of painting with like watercolor and acrylics not as much i'd like to get better but that's something i've always done just i will just say on a amateur like hobby kind of level mm-hmm. and i'd sure love to do it on more of a level i really would yeah. um i love making art what is this on the on the cover is this watercolor um, those were actually marking pens. Uh, that's they what I thought it was. Yeah. Looking that way. Yeah. Yeah, because I didn't have one. Yeah. I didn't have a set that was really good. There's mm-hmm. one thing that'll always forever bug, bug me about that thing, though. The girl with the guitar, like her hand, she's just kind of covering up her private parts because yep. I didn't want to put her private parts on there. Yeah. But some people, it looks like she's like, you know, touching herself or something. I uh, said, no, 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 no. That's not what it's supposed to be. So I wish to this day that I put a leaf there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if I ever put it out again, I'm going to add a leaf. Because <laughs> that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like, you know, tiny bit of modesty in the picture. <laughs> um, yep. But uh, just, just so that's clear. You said something um, about putting it out again. You'd mentioned to me off air that you actually have re-recorded this record. I did, yeah. Um, we have this recording sitting around. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. I think now it just makes sense to make it be a download thing. I don't know. I did this other al- album called Wanna Gotta. Did, did yep. you know about that yep. one? Yep. Oh, do you have that? Cause I can yes, I, I do, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Oh, cool. Yep. Um, thank you. I actually feel better about that one than than anything, really, because I feel like it's the one where I finally got my vocals in shape a little better but uh so we did the same studio as that one and i don't know i just don't know the best way to get it out to people yeah like when i got it i was kind of hoping that the distributors from the old days would pick it up and people in europe could buy them and i just never really got that going um well it is streaming on spotify so people can hear it on there maybe yeah that's probably a better way to go yeah because it seems like, like even my friends, some of them want the CD because they want the, you know, the whole package thing. Like I spent extra money to have the whole lyrics and everything. But most people, 
like I even had my friends going, I'm glad I have the CD, but do you have good quality MP3? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> cause that's what I actually listen to. Um, yeah. So I think, I guess I should do that. Like iTunes. Yeah. And Spotify. Yeah. That's the way most people, I think, consume it for better or for worse these days. Sound quality wise um, for worse, unfortunately, but what else are you working yeah. on right now, Sylvia? Are you, are you still playing music? Are you going to like do a new, do a new record? I don't have plans for a record right now. It seemed like a lot of the places that we played at have closed down. I mean, there's still some places and of course now there's COVID. So yeah. the whole live playing thing is sort of messed up right now. Um, and a lot of people that, either I would play with or that would come to my shows are now in the older set and they, you know, they have kids, they have mortgages, they don't go out the way they did to gigs and they're not as much thrilled by the idea of getting a gig. Oh, we could play a gig. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, like the way we were when, when the guy from the urinals came into the parking lot and we were like, what, us? Yeah. Uh, like a real show in front of people? You know, I mean, that was just, amazing you know but they're not going to be like that right um they're going to be like you have to offer them something better and they're kind of just not in that place in life so it's kind of harder but i would like to record though some more because i I still keep having song ideas and Mm -hmm. this is going to sound weird but i've kind of gotten into a lot of mexican music lately oh wow yeah because the neighborhood i live in plays a, a lot Hopefully you get inspired to play. I know you have a lot of fans. A lot of people, you know, connected to our podcast sure ask about you and talk about you. And Really? Uh, oh, for sure. And well, thank you. You're a great guitar player, and I think you're an amazing singer too. So hopefully, you know, you find some inspiration somewhere and, and start making making music again. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, though. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're very welcome. I want to thank you for, you know, thinking of me, all your kind words. You know, it's it's always inspiring when people, you know, remember you from the old days and you're not all forgotten and, you know, dead and gone. Definitely not. people. So that really feels awesome and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, Sylvia. All right, Brant. So cool to hear Sylvia tell us about all that amazing history that you know, we've never really heard from this perspective, but I got to tell you, like my my number one favorite part of that interview is yet another story about someone who phoned SST and Chuck Dukowski picks up and the rest is history, right? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, hey, why don't we jam? That's like Chuck Dukowski's main move, right? Yeah. Love that. I, I thought you would like uh, the part about Kevin Barrett from the urinals discovering them. Oh yeah. Well, riding his bike around. How many times did that happen? We've covered that on the show too, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's the deal with that? He must've been just around scooping up bands all the time, or he really liked to, to bicycle around, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I was thinking like, she's got a deep SST pedigree, man. She played with, oh, yeah. She also played with Clay Allison, the pre Opal band. Yeah. Leaving Trains, Swa, and this record. Well, can I hit you with a couple of quotes about the record? Yeah, man. Okay, so I'm first going to hit you just with some Spaceman, okay? Sure. So here's what the Spaceman said about nature. And for 
for all of you following along with Brant's spiel about get this shit off my phone, I just want to note that in the SST catalog here, Sylvia Juncosa is part of the letter J, not S. <laughs> Anyways, okay, here's what the spaceman said about Sylvia Juncosa nature in the SST catalog. Stepping alone into the open, exposed to the sun, wind, earth, and sea, Sylvia weaves rock like rapid growing vines in the hot, steamy jungle. Coming from to Damascus, the leaving trains and swa, Sylvia treks solo on Lick My Pussy at Haiti Van Halen and nine more nature tunes. That's the spaceman. LP, cassette, and CD, baby. And let me hit you with this um, trouser press quote because I thought it was interesting given a lot of the discussion with Sylvia about you know, being a female musician and just wanting to have her own band and being a female musician, like not wanting that to be the focus. So check out this from uh, the Trouser Press Record Guide. This would have been the one from the 80s. Well, sorry, wrong. This one's the, the 1991 Trouser Press Record Guide. Here's what it says about nature. With a new bassist and drummer in tow, Giancosa initiated her solo career with nature a relatively accomplished guitar demonstration covering everything from waves of psychedelic noise to gentle acoustic finger-picking. It's interesting to watch this burgeoning fret technician find her feet as well as her chops. Lick My Pussy, Eddie Van Halen, makes it clear that today's guitar hero doesn't need a penis to have balls. Oh. Which I thought which I thought was good, except that, you know, that's kind of like the 1991 version of that. And I would say, you know, the 2020 version of that is, you know, you shouldn't need to have male genitalia to have credibility to begin with. It's true. So it's true. Yeah. Balls is probably not the right uh, threshold. But again, I think it comes through in the interview that like, Sylvia's got some serious street cred. Okay, I'll hit. Since we're doing quotes, I'll hit you with Carducci from Rockin' the Pop Narcotic, real quick. Okay. If lead guitar is what you're looking for, you want Sylvia Giancosa. She played more in the Williamson style in Swa, but in the Sylvia Giancosa band, she goes heels over ass, soloing on a pretty sharp rhythm section. Nice. History lesson, part two. Okay, track one, side one, marked for life. Great opening track. The opening riff lets you know right off the bat where Sylvia's coming from with that jagged riff and the pinched harmonics. Sylvia's pretty hard on her vocals in the interview, but I think they suit the songs perfectly. The middle section with the feedbacking volume swells is really cool. And this is the part where M. Siegel of Paper Bag comes in on what sounds like bongos bongos there's bongos and shredding on this song i like the slower section for like the second half i like that part better yeah yeah i like it too track two open ocean she's talked a lot about her love for nature hence the album's title and of surfing and i think that's kind of what maybe this song's referencing i like the interplay between sylvia's finger-picked parts and tom's bass playing the rocked up middle section with the screaming and what sounds a lot like a big muff is a highlight for sure. Yeah, this is one of the first tracks where 
I was thinking about Sylvia's vocals and they're kind of, I mean, not to compare her with anyone, but to compare her with someone kind of Chrissy Hind esque for me. Yeah. Came across, came across a number of times and I really liked it. I can see that. Track three. This is the one she refers to in the interview, I think as her battle cry, lick my pussy, Eddie Van Halen. It's the one that gets mentioned most in the press and yep. reviews, I think, just because of the outrageous title. It's an instrumental. There's almost some country picking on it with Sylvia shredding over top. Michael James is credited as the horn section guitar synth. Uh, Michael James, I did a little deep dive on him. He's had a lengthy career in the industry. Sounds like he had an interesting childhood, Michael James. He was raised in Spain, where his dad was a member of a doo-wop group called the Chaperones. His parents divorced when he was fairly young, and his mom took up with an outlaw biker club called the Diablos, and he and her lived with them for three years. Due to her drug addiction, he ended up homeless as a teenager, and he started his music career recording a track called She Said Yes for the Radio Tokyo Tapes Volume 1. He formed a, van, a band called Waves of Grain with Luke Lores from The Last and released one record in 1985 called uh, The West Was Fun. The drummer of that band was actually Brendan O'Brien, one of the most famous engineers, producers on the planet. Yeah. Uh, that record was, of course, mastered by John Golden. He started engineering at Radio Tokyo in the 80s and was chief engineer by 1990. He's worked on a bunch of amazing records with bands like L7, Hole, Jane's Addiction, Jawbreaker, and tons more. Okay, track four, Tower of Ashes. Drums programmed by Ethan James. Not sure you'd know that they were programmed drums if it wasn't credited on the LP. This yeah. is the obvious single. It has a real it's it's a really catchy song. The video is great. She's playing a Les Paul in the video, which is unusual. You usually always see her with that red SG. Yeah. She, she also plays bass on this track and piano. Did you look up that Tower of Ashes? Like what that is? No. How she mentioned it in the interview. Yeah. So apparently in ancient Persia, it was a way uh, that they would um, execute people is they would go into this tower that was full of ashes and they would have these wheels that they would turn so that all these ashes were always churning in the air and it would asphyxiate people. So pretty brutal. Jeez, man. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> Track five, Nature. A cool three-minute finger-picked acoustic instro to end side one. Mm-hmm. Is this, is this what you would call... It's not flat picking. Is this Travis picking? Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay, track one, side two, Broken. Kind of a mid-tempo rocker. Some cool guitar playing with some wah. The solo at the end is pretty bitchin'. Track two, something in this picture. The best part of this one is the totally unhinged solo. The album, for me, is definitely front-loaded. Like, side two is less memorable. Really? Me. Yeah. I would say, like, Broken and Dark World are my favorite tracks. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Track three, Plant. Almost a 60s pop vibe, some backwards guitar, some echo on the vocals. They were definitely going for something specific with that one, I would say. Track four, Dark World. Cool start with the drums and bass and some, you know, wah guitar and some feedback. 
It's a pretty cool atmospheric track with some more percussion from M. Siegel. Yeah, the bass playing really stood out for me. This is really that 80s production that we've heard people talk about before, that gated reverb on stuff. It's it's kind of all over this record, and it really comes through on this track. Still works, though. I thought the drumming, though, really reminds me of George Hurley. Oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. just, just think about it. I'm interested in your thoughts, like, it's a very Hurley-esque type of uh, drum pattern with the bass intro for me. Okay. And then the record ends with a song called On the Spot, which is kind of a jam that I think was likely created, as the title says, On the Spot. It's the only song credited to all three members. The rest are all Sylvia written solely by her. The ma- main guitar line on this one reminds me a lot of the Butthole Surfer song Sweat Loaf. Oh, yeah. So the the parts before it goes into the sweet leaf riff, you know? <laughs> Here's a review, Ryan, that Ken De La Cruz actually sent me from the Ink Disease zine, written by this guy, Andrew Clay. The former guitarist of Two Damascus has generated an eclectic compilation of material ranging from folk ballads to variable tempo psycho metal thrash. She knows how to get a fingernails on chalkboard screech out of her wah pedal, and she can fling her her fingernails with the velocity of the best speed medalists. She also has a soft touch showing up in the simple progressions she plays on acoustic guitar. Very Jefferson Airplane. And also in her wavering emotional vocals. The strongest songs are Marked for Life and Tower of Ashes, each held together by simple, compelling guitar lines in unusual scales. Altogether, this album plays like the soundtrack of a film in which a dejected, down-and-out Joni Mitchell revenges herself on the world by joining Megadeth. Whoa. Here's a little bit I wrote about what she did next, Ryan. And I have to say, much like Glenn Phillips, this is one of my least favorite of her records, actually. The next one, 1998's One Thing, is killer, as is the next record, which was called Is from 1990 her live acoustic ep from 91 is a cool listen and her most recent one is 2015's wanna gotta which also has an sst connection steve reed of the band bazooka and also legal weapon plays on that one and i would also recommend tracking down the two damascus record come to your senses but that's not to say i don't like this record it's good i had never heard it before this this episode to be honest. And, uh, I was, I was surprised there's some, uh, I mean, it's not like my expectations were super high, but, um, I mean, Sylvia has got a bit of a rep, right? Like, yeah. you know, you're in for a wild ride and it's going to be good. And, uh, it was a real interesting listen and I was surprised how much I enjoyed some of the tracks in particular. Yeah. Maybe what it is about those later ones that I like better is her playing is a little more realized. Uh, her vocals, while still having the quality they have on this record, are also, she's maybe got a few things more sorted out about how she wants to use her voice, and uh, maybe the production's a bit better. Mm. Like, less dated. Yeah. Yeah. The artwork we talk about in the interview, she, she did the cover art for this. She does a lot of art for her albums, and it's all really great. It's got a bit of a psychedelic vibe, for sure, for me anyways. Yeah. 
that's got to be her on the cover there because I'm pretty sure that tattoo that you see on her shoulder is one that, and you can see one on her forearm there. That's, I'm pretty sure the tattoos that Sylvia has. Not on the back here. I'm not sure where this is, but several cool photos of her taken by uh, Raymond Juncosa. I'm not sure who he is of her in front of this mural of a wave with that red SG of hers. Yep. Says here, special thanks to all those who have bestowed friendship, support, money, sex, clothing, food, shelter, and words of wisdom throughout the past year. Green M&Ms, courtesy of Lisa Derrick. Yeah. Any dead wax? There is, Ryan. Let's hear it, man. Come okay. on. Usually do the dead wax. I only have this on CD. Okay, hold on. Oh, Lay geez. it on. I hope I, I hope I can pull it off. Good luck. It's really, really small. Why don't you get your monocle out as well? It doesn't have sides, by the way. It's got the inside and the outside instead of side Ooh. A and side B. There so the go. inside inside says, Salvation continues. And then the outside, which has this cool picture that you've probably seen before of a bunch of hands. Yep. That's wearing on the like CD. bracelets and fishnet, you know, a fishnet glove and stuff says, my mom did my acid with an exclamation mark. <laughs> yeah, that picture of the hands, for some reason, it might be because I'm reading the Bad Religion book, it really reminded me of like a hands version of the cover of the 8085 comp by Bad yeah. Religion. I don't know why that yeah. is. Ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. I already gave it away. I would go with probably Broken or Dark World, but what are your faves? Marked for Life, Open Ocean, and Tower of Ashes are mine. Woo, no overlap. No way. Yeah. I wow. I especially like that song, Tower of Ashes. I think it's just a, a great song. Really memorable. Really sticks in your head. Yeah. And the video is great. It is good. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Hey, Ryan, I want to thank Sylvia for coming on the show. It was really great having her on and... And uh, thanks again to Ken and Dave for helping me track her down. Yeah, definitely. Ryan, what's next week? All right, next week we're going to have a Fred Frith and Henry Kaiser LP. SST-147 with enemies like these, who needs friends? Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.